Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Luke, welcome back to the show, mate. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me back on. It's always a pleasure, mate. It's always a pleasure because we get to talk small companies. We get to talk micro caps, um, some really interesting businesses. But many of our listeners will be aware you've, you know, you've switched roles, you've stepped, gone out on your own, and you've started your own fund since we spoke last time. I'll include a link in the show notes for anyone that didn't listen to the previous episode with Luke. But maybe you can give us an introduction to Meriwether. Tell us a little bit about how you found it. It's early days, market's been volatile. You know, how have you found things running your own money? Yeah, yeah. Well, when we did the podcast last time, uh, back then I was still at Oracle Investment Management. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in that podcast, a, a big part of our conversation was um, my, my professional work at Oracle versus I've always had a, a passion individually for, for micro cap and small cap stocks. Uh, and that was my online persona, uh, Winnie, which we were discussing. Um, and so, yeah, Meriwether, I, I've had the opportunity, the, the, um, the fortune uh, to be able to follow that 
you know, more individual passion and, and launch Meriwether Capital. Um, right now, it's just the inception fund, um, which is a, a pure micro cap fund. So a real extension of, of what I was doing personally um, and had some good success with. Um, yeah, fund launched back in early December. Um, so I've, I've sort of half joked to a few people, I, I can hopefully look back in a few years and be the guy who launched his fund a few months before World War Three. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see how it all plays out. But it's been good, um, you know, going into it. I, I sort of uh, was told by some people and, and understood the importance of making sure I had a, a good investor base who who understood me and, and my process and you know the the volatility that you would have um, of course the overall market but but with micro caps in particular so um, I've been pleasantly surprised with with my investor base and, and how they've reacted to to the volatility um, and yeah I actually look I I, I see it more as an opportunity right now than a massive risk to the downside i i you know have, have put a lot of cash to work since since launching Meriwether. so um we'll talk about a few today um and some of them i've, I've actually bought recently too which is nice but um yeah overall it's been no no short of interest um interesting but um also also some good lessons and, and i think i've accelerated my my learning you know i sort of would have hoped to, to to do a lot of these lessons over the next three four five years i've squeezed them into three months but um it's it's all been very good oh, well if you you can survive this and i you seem to be acting in a way your temperament seems very cool and collected um i think you can you can survive the next few years too uh, just quickly it's um is it wholesale only in fifty thousand dollar minimums to invest it is, it is, yeah. Just yep. given the restrictions around that, that retail versus wholesale, the costs of a retail fund, we are we are wholesale only. But um, look, if anyone's wholesale investor, um, sophisticated status, um, reach out, investors at meriwethercapital.com.au. I can, I can run you through um, sort of what we do and, and who I am. Yeah, great. Um, and there are updates and there are a couple of um, company write-ups on the site too there. Yeah. So there's one on yeah. XREF. I've, I've tried to populate the, the website with some stuff. So meriwethercapital.com.au, you can sign up for monthly notes and, Every now and then, I've, I've probably haven't kept up as much as I would like, but I'm trying to put out sort of blog posts on individual companies. And, and yeah, we've got XREF and, and Kit McGrath, which we'll talk about in a second on the website, um, and hopefully do a, a few more of them. So gives uh, mm. investors you know a bit of insight into uh, the stocks I'm looking at, and also how I maybe approach investing as well. Yeah, great. So before we get to the, the three to five companies, you've brought three to the table. I've brought two slightly larger companies to the table. Um, Maybe just to just to get your thoughts on reporting season. You alluded to it being very volatile there. Um, we were going to record this a week or two ago, but you're away on holiday. I was away on holiday, um, so now we're doing it. And these companies um, stood out to you for you know some good reasons, I assume. But maybe just generally speaking, how have you found reporting season this year as opposed to years gone by? Yeah, so I guess to clarify first, the, the three companies I'll talk about, I, I own them all in Meriwether Capital, and they were sort of the three standout reports, um, which is why I wanted to bring them to, to people's attention. Um, reporting season overall, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting. On the whole, I thought it was quite positive. I thought it really showed the resilience of, of a lot of businesses um, in the face of a, a lot of moving a lot of moving aspects. Um, you know, they, they've been rehashed a you know a million times not only by businesses themselves but but also talking heads um around inflation interest rates supply chains commodity pressures wage pressures just this confluence of factors that, that could have impacted businesses and some were heavily so don't get me wrong but but i was pleasantly surprised with how many were able to to, to buffet a lot of those challenges um and, and put some resilient results out to the market and um, commentary on the whole was, I think, pretty positive. Um, obviously, wait and see. And, and there's always reasons to be negative. Um, and, and 
you know, sometimes they do come out of left field, something like a COVID, and that's what that's what can really shock the market. But but I think on a whole, the the ASX and particularly where I play in that micro cap, small cap space, um, I, I think a lot of businesses have really come out of COVID quite strongly and, and, and are poised to do well over the next few years. Um, the the caveat to that, and I'm sure you guys at Rask noticed this as well, was um, you still had to do a lot of work under the surface with these results, though. Um, mm. So you rewind 12 months ago, the main thing we were doing was sort of trying to strip out the benefits of COVID subsidies and impacts and things like that. And now it's the opposite where you're having some pretty clean results for the last six months, but their prior corresponding periods may have been boosted by JobKeeper or anything else. Mm. And so it's, it's still a lot of work to try and come up with those clean comparisons and see how underlying businesses are really moving. Um, but that's, that's, you know, that's the, the fun part of the job. And I think that's the opportunity for investors who are able to do that, then, you know, what doesn't look like an opportunity on the surface, you, you do that little bit of digging, that little bit of scratching and you see, well, you know, there might be some, some sort of mitigating factors to some of these numbers. And, and, you know, what I like to term that underlying earnings engine of the business has actually improved, even if the headline numbers haven't. So I thought it was a really interesting reporting season from that point of view as well. Um, and, and, and like I said, I, I, as, as a micro cap investor, I love those sorts of reporting seasons because that's my opportunity. I know that a large part of my, of, of, of the market in the micro caps will purely move based on whatever those reported numbers are. The opportunities where I can say, well, hold on that reported number is a little bit weak, but you know, I can sort of adjust for this or, or, you know, um, remove that. And I think that that's where I always get my best ideas from. Mm. How about in terms of just. One final question on this. How about in terms of like outlook statements? Um, I think some people's fears are that uh, a lot of, you know, the inflation impacts are not yet truly felt by some of these businesses. How, how did you find companies dealing with that from like, a, you know, second half or, um, you know, full year results um, perspective? Yeah, look, I I think that's a fair statement that, that the numbers that we're seeing in the pipeline haven't flown through to the businesses yet, haven't flowed through, sorry. Um I actually thought outlook statements on the whole were pretty positive. And, and maybe that's me setting my expectations from a, a COVID world of the last two years of mm-hmm. most businesses actually just outright not providing any sort of guidance or commentary because of uncertainties. Um, but, but you know, like I said, in, in my sort of, uh, I will admit it can sometimes be a smallish bubble in that small micro cap space. Um, I, I thought most companies were pretty positive on the whole. Um, and I, I think the main reason for that is even though you do have some of these uncertainties in the future and inflation is the, is, is the big one coming through, um, the, uh, the recovery out of COVID for a lot of businesses probably has the potential to overwhelm those inflation pressures. And, and so the overall business can still ride that COVID recovery even, even through um, any sort of um, bumps that, that may come. Um, but look, it's it's worth you know it's it's always worth keeping half an eye on the macro. I, I I'm not a macro investor myself, so I, I certainly don't position the Meriwether Capital portfolio from a top down perspective. I don't take a view on where I think the macroeconomics is going or commodity prices or interest rates. But certainly being aware of the environment, I guess more importantly, being aware of how individual businesses in your portfolio are positioned for the macroeconomic environment. And we can touch on one, and we'll, we'll talk about one actually with um, XRF Scientific um, being exposed to commodity cycles. Um, they actually, uh, they, they were one of the few companies that called out potential headwinds from, from commodity prices. So um, yes, I, I certainly, you, you keep that stuff in mind, but, but no, on the whole, I, like I said, I, I actually thought this reporting season um, was, was pretty strong. And, and that's, I think creating a lot of opportunities because of course the broader market's been volatile and, and downside volatility in particular. 
but those fundamental reports, I think, have been pretty strong. So you've, you've had the opportunity to, th- I think, buy businesses that are doing well, have just reported well, um, you know, with share prices that have, have sometimes actually gone backwards. Mm. Well, why don't we start with that? We were going to start with Kip, but why don't we start with XRF? So mm. um, it's a fascinating little business. I think um, people maybe don't necessarily understand the business too well because it, it kind of gets like into the weeds of testing, laboratory equipment, consumables, um, X-ray, fluoroscopy. Um, people get a bit like tongue twisted with that mm. one. Uh, can you just maybe highlight what the business does? Yeah. Um, and then we'll just we'll just roll from there. Yeah, look, you look at their their presentations and you're right. Like your first thought is this is an incredibly complex business and it is in that sort of um, laboratory products segment. Um, it's actually an incredibly simple business. So um, they are they're exposed to, to, to commodity producers primarily. So these guys, yeah. um, if I'm if I'm a miner and I'm exploring or or um, you know digging stuff out of the ground and they know the grade or the or, or whatever of it, um, I do an assay test, which is just a you know tube of, of straight rock mineral. Um, that goes off to the lab it gets crushed into a fine powder Um, some chemicals are then mixed in with that powder and heated up to some incredibly hot temperatures to create effectively a glass disc and that that goes in into an x-ray spectrometer so where xrf comes into that process is historically they've just been those machines that heated up to an incredibly hot temperature Um, they've expanded a little bit vertically into that chain and bought one of those crushing uh, Mm. machines now business uh, orbis mining it's called but the best way to think about XRF is they make lab machines that, that heat things to incredible temperatures and, and um, you know, are then used to, to, in that sort of assay testing. Um, so they're exposed to mining. There's no doubt about that. The, the more testing and things like that benefits XRF. But the business is probably not as cyclical as what people believe because I think when people think about mining and commodity cyclicality, they usually refer to um, the capex of exploring. So you think about your traditional mining services businesses that are quite cyclical. They need new explorers raising capital, coming to market, going out and drilling and creating new projects. That's not so much XRF. Most of their business is just ongoing mining. So, you know, BHP, Rio, Fortescue, these big guys, they're continually, um, you know, testing their their, their, uh, their their mines and their product. And that ongoing just mining is, is, is XRF. So they do have some cyclicality at the front end. So, you know, last couple of years have done well as, as that sort of junior mining sector has done okay. But the core business, like Australia will continue to dig things up out of the ground for a long time. And, and, and that's been very steady, even through the mining bust. Um, the other aspect of the business I, I really like that I think gets overlooked is the... Um, um, consumable side of the business. So I, I mentioned before, they put some chemicals that, that go into um, the, the the assay that needs to be tested. Um, and they, they sell these chemicals to clients over and over and over. So um, they'll, they'll sell a machine up front, um, but then the ongoing chemicals, and it's a very high margin segment, like, you know, mid 30% profit before tax margins. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful sort of razor, razor blade model. So it's one of the things I've always liked about XRF and, and it's sort of a, a hidden jewel in that business because they've actually, uh, they've got a very dominant global market share, like upwards of 50% in that sort of um, chemical space, which I, I think is sort of lost on, on the market a little bit. But um, that's the business in a nutshell. Like I said, it, it probably looks more complicated than what it is. Um, but um, yeah, look, jumping into the report, I suppose, um, come through reporting season, Revenue was up 24%. Um, this is one of those businesses I said before, you know, the headline NPAT was only up 17%, that net profit number, but there was some COVID benefits in that 
prior result. So I was saying before about adjusting last year's result to try and get a clean sort of comparison between the two. Um, you know, real profits, if you want to call them that, were up 56%. So some good leverage over that revenue growth. Um, the business, the other thing I really like about this business, which again, I think sort of gets lost a bit on the market is the quality of their balance sheet. Um, so you look at their balance sheet, there's about... 50 mil in total assets, even if you strip out some of their liabilities, it's about 20 mil in just real tangible, solid quality assets. Uh, a lot of that is, um, is platinum, which goes into the, the manufacture of their machinery. Um, they have some chemicals on their balance sheet. So lithium is a big input to their chemical that they use. So they've got some lithium on the balance sheet. They own their property down in Victoria um, and, and um they have a bunch of plant equipment as well. So I think it's a very strong balance sheet and the liquidation value, I think, is quite high. They could, they could sell particularly that platinum and lithium back into some very liquid markets. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's never been an aspect of the business that's worried me. Same with, with cash. Cash has always been brilliant. They convert their profits to cash fantastically. Um, like I said, the only this was a business that, that was one. You look at that output outlook statement. On the whole, it was quite positive. The thing they did call out, though, is that lithium is a key input for them and, and that yeah. big EV demand of lithium. Um, so they've called out they expect costs to rise by a double-digit percentage. Um, now, what I like about this business, uh, they've also said they think they can um, increase their revenue by that sort of amount as well, so to basically pass on that cost increase to their customers. Um, I give them the benefit of the doubt that they can because I've followed this business for a while. I've owned it for a while. Um, and they haven't put a price increase through to their customers for, I think, two or three years, um, certainly pre-COVID. So I think they've got some sort of latent demand there, the ability to pass on some price increases, particularly in this environment where I think customers are probably more receptive to it because we're all aware of the headlines around inflation and particularly commodity inflation. So going to your customers and say, look, price of lithium is up 10 15% for us. We're passing that on. I think they have the ability to do that a little bit. So worth mm -hmm. keeping an eye on, though. Um, particularly because, you know, that lithium price hasn't really slowed down a great deal. Uh, I think maybe they were hoping for it too. It hasn't. So be aware they are exposed to that. And, and this is in that key consumable segment where those strong margins of 30 35%, there's a lot of fat that could be eaten away if, if these, um, these lithium prices continue to boom like they are. So that's probably the key risk to the business. Um, but overall, the outlook's quite positive. Um, they, they have expanded quite well. Um, and they were savvy enough to do it during the mining bust which I think, um, we'll talk about Kit McGrath in a second, did a similar thing. A business who can time their CapEx cycles, I think is a really attractive thing as an investor. So your traditional business, and mining is a great example of this, when we had the mining boom, when times are good, the natural inclination of a management team is to spend that money. You know, the, the money's coming in the door. Let's go and acquire. Let's go and expand. Let's, let's go into that. And of course, everyone has that same idea. So your returns on investment are often very, very poor. Um, and the mining boom was a great example of that. So businesses who can be counter-cyclical with their CapEx cycles. And so XRF, when the mining bust happened, that was when they began an expansion into Europe with, with their products, um, targeting more of the, uh, the heavy industry segment like cement and glass and things like that. I find that very appealing. And so 
they're now coming out of that. So as that commodity cycle has turned for them, their capex cycles also finished out. So you're seeing a real strength in in, in the margins, and and you see that that they call it their precious metal segment. That's that's been the segment where margins have really expanded strongly over the last uh, year and a half, and they're calling that to continue. So um, it's probably going a little bit in the weeds for people, but I think that's something you know keep an eye out on that on on how management allocates capital, but more importantly when. Um, the, the last thing you want to see is managers getting exuberant when when times are good. Um, you'd mm. rather see them do that when, when times are poor. Um, but yeah, look, I think, um, you know, they're calling out a couple of new products to be released, um, uh, you know, sort of in that core laboratory range. But I think I was one going to ask was, you about that. Have, yeah. they, have they mentioned much? Um, do you have any insights into that? I don't. They're very tight. They're very, very tight. Even even when I've spoken to them and they've done some meetings, um, probably some some competitive stuff around that. So uh, the most I've gotten out of them is that a couple of new products, one will be in that core um, sort of um, flux space of the, the, you know, laboratory stuff. But the other one they've sort of said, it's similar technology, but in a different segment. So that's, you know, I I attribute no real value to that, but it's it's certainly some blue sky upside if they can, um, you know, expand their addressable market into other segments. It's, it's, um, you know, something worth keeping an eye on. But but Mm. overall, I thought it was a a really, really strong result. Um, Just pivoting again, bringing it always back to valuation because you can talk about how good the business is. You've got to pay the right price. Um, they did um, about two, I've got it here in front of me, they did 2.8 mil net profit after tax in the first half, growing strongly. So maybe that comes out to sort of high five, six mil um, mm-hmm. trading on a um, 80 mil market cap. So, you know, about 13 times earnings, I think is pretty reasonable for this business, um, given all those characteristics we spoke about. And importantly, I think the growth, I, th- I think you'll see that multiple probably go from 13 to sort of maybe 10, 11 next year as, as that continues to, to, to grow strongly. So, yeah, I think pays that's a, one. Pays a modest dividend too. Pays a modest dividend. So it, it ticks a lot of boxes for me. Um, and, it, you know, very... Um, not, not only a competent management team, but but very conservative. I, I think you see that in the way they run their balance sheet. Um, I I have actually sort of quizzed them in the past of whether that's maybe a bit too lazy. They could, you know, uh, leverage up with a bit more debt for sure. Um, but the, you know, the reply back to me is always a good one. And, and you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll butcher the quote from the CEO, but it was something along the lines of, that's how a you know textbook MBA would want to run this business of, of you know strip the mm-hmm. equity out level with debt, um, but a but a business operator you know when you're thinking five ten years and and, and the security of your business, um, you know you, you run it conservatively and of course you know credit to him I was probably telling him that before COVID when when you know supply chains were hit very strongly and this is a business that keeps oh, I think nine twelve months worth of inventory on hand so. Um, very conservative, pays a nice dividend, um, reasonable valuation. But I think you know, the growth is there too, which I think is always important to have in any business, not just a micro cap. Mm. Yeah, it's a great rundown, mate. XRF, trades on the ASX under the ticker code XRF, uh, pretty straightforward. Um, 80 mil market cap, as you said, or thereabouts. So it does tend to be a liquid for some investors. Um, obviously, you're very familiar with that, you know, running a small slash micro cap fund. Um, but for investors out there and listeners, just keep that in mind and, and you might want to mo- monitor the liquidity position. But um, it's a business that probably doesn't get enough attention, I would say, because it's actually very high quality. It's um, one that we've recommended in the past as well. I could never figure out what these new two new devices were. Um, and I, I was waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, and so maybe we'll just, we just have to keep waiting until we find out you know, what it is that they launch. But um, really interesting business. Um, you did mention that many investors' concerns are more cyclical in nature, mm. given its resources, but um, there is a lot of staying power there too. Uh, maybe we'll switch gears then. We'll jump across to another company. Um, maybe I'll, I'll 
talk about this one, which is uh, Catapult Group, which is a, a business that many retail investors would be familiar with if they just watch the, the AFL or the rugby or um, some European soccer. Um, originally, Catapult started as a GPS wearables business, so for sports athletes and performance athletes and, and their, and their um, staff could monitor fitness, monitor activity on, on the ground or on the court um, and get insights from that. They then expanded into video analytics um, which basically says, you know, this, here's the camera. Let's look down on the, the ground. Um, think of like Telstra Tracker if you watch the AFL, something like that. Uh, then they made this move probably, which was a poor use of capital. They moved into um, the prosumer division, which is where basically they tried to take their advanced analytics from professional sports and apply that to semi-pro athletes or athletes that maybe are aspirational in nature. Uh, that didn't work. And the business has since kind of been hit. Um, we've got a new CEO at the helm come from Audible. Uh, which is basically focused on driving subscriptions. One acquisition that they made recently was a company called SBG Sports in London. And what this business does is it effectively takes its dominant position in F1 sports and using analytics to predict, for example, if you watch the, uh, the F1, when, um, say, McLaren might pass Ferrari. Is there a 52% chance that McLaren passes Ferrari in the next three laps or something like that? And so they've taken that technology and they're now trying to apply it to different sports. And under the CEO, uh, Will Lopez, they're trying to basically bring together video and their other analytics engines and put it all in the cloud um, and sell subscriptions into it. So I think I've got some numbers here just from the, the most recent period. And uh, where are they? Here we go. So from the most recent period, there's this uh, software as a service sales growth. Um, they measure it as annualized contract value, which they're, are some uh, criticisms of this metric, but ACV growth was up 43% year on year. Um, and that was driven by both divisions, performance and health, that wearables division up 40%, tactics and coaching up 57%. Subscription revenue is growing fast at 29%. I think the thing that investors will want to watch from here though is basically their cost base. How do they, they're, they're heavily recruiting. If you go to the Catapult uh, website, you go forward slash careers, I think it is, you will see how heavily they're investing in bringing um, data together with predictive analytics. So in the past, it's more like we'll capture the game, we'll look at the GPS afterwards, and we'll then get some insights from that. And then it became, okay, we can do real-time analytics. And now the next step is how do we then be become more predictive with the analytics in real time to influence performance and coaching and tactics? Um, and that's where we'll see a lot of benefit. One of Some of the big red flags I might also call out too for Catapult is it's kind of got a, a bit of a check in history in terms of its focus on profitability and its key competitor stat sports has been winning some of the biggest deals around the world. Um, you know, many deals in the U S for example, I think there was a billion dollar plus contract that stat sports won. Um, and that would, you know, we would, if, if catapulted won that, it would be probably an ASX 200, um, but it's not. So the, this business is really impressive um, it's got really impressive technology. I think it may have squandered its first leader advantage over the years, but um, I really, really like the business for its sticky um, revenue. I would say there are risks on the horizon being those costs. Um, it has recently changed. You talked about kind of like subsidies muddying the waters, mate. Uh, it actually changed its reporting season uh, calendar and its window. So we're currently dealing with a mixture of nine-month results, half-year results, yearly results, and we're trying to reconcile all that. Um, but I think it's for the right reasons. The, the change of the, the year and the change of the reporting currency actually aligns better with the target audience, which is in the, the, the US and um, over in Europe. So uh, that's Catapult Group, trades under the ASX ticket code CAT. There's a lot to watch. Um, I think it's a, 
impressive company. The, the acquisition of SBG will bolster growth. Um, but keep an eye on that free cash flow and make sure you calculate it yourself. Uh, that's that's Catapult. Um, mate, I think maybe we've, we've alluded to talking about Kit McGrath. I know Claude Walker, if he listens, he probably is a regular listener. He, he'd want us to talk about Kit McGrath too. Trades under the ticker symbol KME. Um, really interesting business. Profitable. Pays a dividend, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what does Kit McGrath do? Yeah, it's probably one that people are familiar with. Um, so Kit McGrath, um, you know, you'd see their uh, education centres around. It's a it's a tutoring business. Um, previously was a pure face-to-face um, business, um, running, I think, lessons of, of six students at a time. Um, they were making a slow incursion into, into online, um, but this, the uptake was, was very slow. I think the... Um, the perception from a lot of students and parents is that online learning, the outcomes aren't as strong as face-to-face. So people, um, you know, weren't quite willing to, to, to take it on straight away. But of course, COVID hits and, and you're essentially forced into, into online learning, not just in schools, but uh, with tutors as well. So luckily, they already had their online platform in place and was able to take advantage of that. And the overall business actually held up really well through COVID, um, considering the type of business it is. Um, so. It was one I referenced before talking about um, XRF, where you, you talk about um, capex cycles and the way businesses invest. And I've, I've sometimes said um, when you have a larger business, and even take Catapult as an example before, Catapult's a few hundred mil market cap and, and you know a good chunk of revenue. Um, they have the capacity to put on four, five, six mil of new employees, and and can sort of you know they have the the, the, the size to be able to do that. For a Kit McGrath at 60 mil market cap, um, you know, when you flesh out your executive team, upgrade your, you know, back-end platforms and go through this sort of CapEx investment cycle, um, even a two, three million dollar investment completely sure. wipes out all your reported profits. And so to do that's a big decision. And when to do that's an even bigger one. And, and, and they did that during COVID, where COVID hits, their top line actually held up okay, but the growth stopped. They, they were previously growing about 15, 20%. And, and of course, um, when, when COVID hits it, everyone sort of just paused. Um, but the the decision to then embark on an investment cycle and they fleshed out with a, a chief technology officer, a chief um, product officer. Um, they upgraded their back-end um, center management software, um, implemented like Salesforce as a marketing software and, and some um, online booking software. So They've done that during COVID. So the reported numbers, like I sort of uh, was talking about before, took a real hit in that period. But now the benefits of that will play out. That that scalable platform is now put in place. The COVID recovery, fingers crossed, we're, we're, we're on the way out. And, um, you know, after two years of disrupted learning, um, students are able to, to finally refocus back on to, to where they need to be. And so it keeps well positioned, I think, to really see some fantastic operating leverage over the next few years. So the two things they've done, and I think, again, it's a pivoting business model, which maybe makes it a little bit more difficult to analyze for people. Um, but the first thing they've done is that pivot to online lessons. COVID accelerated that. I think that's now entrenched. I think they've sort of said 20 to 30% of lessons will stay online. It's, it's actually persistently stayed up around 35, 40. So wait and see. Maybe it does make its way back down. But I think that's now entrenched and people have seen you're able to do online lessons and maintain at least you know enough to make it comparable to going in face-to-face. It also has the benefit, it opens up their addressable market. So you think about what Kit McGrath used to be. If you had a centre in Tamworth, um, you know, it was very difficult to get anyone who wasn't in maybe a a 25, 50 kilometre radius. It's a long way to travel for, for, you know, an hour tutoring lesson. 
with online lessons, it, it just broadens that whole basin of, of where you can attract students from. So that, that's the other, the other big benefit they see. Um, but the other key change to this business, and it's one that I always love to see a business do it, it's go from a franchisee model to a corporate model. So previously, the whole business was franchisee. Every Kit McGrath centre you, you walk past would be owned by a, a third-party franchisee. Kit McGrath would provide some back-end support of obviously the brand. Um, and they, they'd collect, you know, 15 to 20% of the lesson fees for the services they provided. But over time, if you decide to do a corporate strategy, you can pick and choose which centres you want to bring into your corporate business. And so you know the centres that are doing well, you know the centres that have the, um, you know, that maybe aren't optimised right, that if you were to purchase that, we can do some small things, change some things, and we, can, we know the strategies to, to optimise. Um, and so you've seen it with a lot of retailers who have been franchised and they slowly bring their best ones back in-house and capture that whole profit margin for themselves. And you leave the um, subscale or, or less optimised, um, in, in the case of KIP, usually your rural centres, um, to, to be franchisees in your service in the way you always have. So this pivot to the corporate centres um, has meant they've had to bring in a a lot of those costs up front, like I said before, you've got to bring in an executive team, you've got to bring in a, a whole platform to be able to service, you know, um, they've currently got 22 centres around Australia and the UK. Um, but a lot of that's very scalable. Once you put those costs in place, you know, the corporate centre revenue can now scale over the top. So you go from capturing, like I said before, about 20% of your, of your total lesson fee to now capturing the whole hundred. So revenue growth's really strong. Um, and now I think is where you'll see that profit growth really catch up with it because you, you'll, you'll scale over that um, you know, relatively fixed cost base in the background. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot to like about KIP. It, it, it to me feels a little bit where XRF was maybe back in 2017, 2018. You've, you've, you've had that investment period. You're now looking to leverage that and, and, and come out of it the other side and see that, that profit growth. Um, and, and look, I, I think the other one as well um, is not only is it a good business, steady business has historically been profitable, pays a dividend. I've sort of alluded to it. You've had two years of disrupted learning. And I think schools, governments, and even parents themselves, I think everyone acknowledges that it will be difficult for the, the, the current school system, the way it is, to just completely pick up that slack. Um, and that in some form or fashion, tutoring will have to do some, some, some lifting. Um, so governments, uh, New South Wales and Victoria have already um, put plans in place and, and Kit McGrath has access to, to um, school-based programs. Um, but the real big one that they are eyeing off is they've just started a little tiny beachhead into the US and mm. that's their expansion plan in the US is, is through the school system. So it's a very low-risk way of expanding. They started with like three schools in Arizona. That's now up to, I think, nine um, and they're just expanding as the school contracts roll in. So they'll, they'll win a contract with a school to provide some, some tutoring services for students. It means you scale up with your revenue um, without having to do the, you know, like a lot of businesses, you might have to spend three, four, five million dollars just establishing, trying to build a brand, trying to, you know, uh, essentially put a business in place before it even exists. So the ability to scale up like that with the schools, I think is good. And it's under that Kit McGrath branding too. So that's, mm. that's the big one is at some point, I think when the time's right, um, they'll, they'll pivot away from just the schools and, 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 you know, replicate their Australian business model, but they're able to do it in a very low risk way. It's, it's interesting. A lot of people don't know that um, before Storm took over as CEO, I believe it was, Kit McGrath shares traded for two cents. Um, the business was in this real tough spot. Um, 
because it was had these legacy franchise contracts. Some of them were like $12,000 a year fixed mm. fees going back to Kip McGrath. And obviously, as the franchisees did better and demanded more of Kip, they were in a tough spot where they had to kind of unwind the franchise deals. And they're also repurchasing, like you said, they're repurchasing a lot of these territories, like in the UK, Scotland, et cetera. Um, it's, it's a really interesting news. I like it. I own shares, by the way, um, because I see it as kind of like there's three ways for them to grow. They've got the, mm. the corporate centres. They can repurpose the franchisees. Um, but then they've also got the, um, the US business as well. And, you know, I think there was a lot of criticism of them making that foray into the, the US with Tutorfly. But if you think about it, if you take a three-year view, say, the, the acquisition makes a lot of sense because it's positioned between tutor and student. Mm. And like you said, the, the, the governments are focusing on schools and getting students to learn more and using tutors to do that. So it's kind of opportune time for them to make that foray. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and yeah, I think under Storm's leadership, the business's execution has been pretty, pretty um, first rate. So pretty much yeah, first rate. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, it's always, I was actually chatting to someone this morning about this. Um, you see it with different companies where, you have a founder who, who's founded a business you know, decades ago, and when a family member or a son takes over, it can sometimes be an interesting dynamic. And 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 Kip's Kip McGrath, when when Kip ran it, obviously Kip McGrath is is um, you know the the the, the name there. Um, it was a much more conservative business, and and yep. I think over time, you know, without disparaging Kip in any way, things sort of were done because that's the way they were done. And so when Storm shows up and has some ideas about where this business not only um, can go, but some but sort of where it has to go, like he, his background was in tech and I think he knew the future of, of tutoring would be online. So luckily he began that pivot before COVID. Um, and, and understanding as well, the relationship between the franchisees was an important one, but one where I think you're right, the power had shifted to the franchisees and they had to bring that back. And I think going the corporate way has done that. It's shown franchisees we can do this ourselves. So come with us, but you know, we're not going to allow ourselves to be, to, to be beholden to you. So I agree. I think he's done a, a really fantastic job. Um, the, the share price reflects that from where it's been the last few years. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, but on a shorter time frame of, of call it maybe a couple of years post COVID it's sort of languished, I think. And I, and I think a yeah. part of that is that, that dynamic I was speaking before about, the reported numbers has has been a little bit lumpy through this period as Storm's gone through his investment phase, but you know, and I'm sure you agree with me as a, as a shareholder. Um, you know, it's it's the ability to be able to see through that and see again. I'll, I'll come back to it. I, I call it that underlying earnings engine. And so, if I, I think about where Kip McGraw was two years ago versus today, the reported numbers it would look like it's either gone backwards or gone nowhere. But the potential of those earnings, I think, has dramatically increased. And it's just, you know, it, to bring an agriculture um, sort of um, analogy into it, you, you, you're sort of, you're planting your seeds and it's, it's when you choose to harvest them is, is the big question. And um, I think that timing is pretty soon. I think you'll see it in the corporate side, maybe not the second half 22, but, but maybe FY23. Um, but it's, it's, it's certainly one. I love those, I love those styles of investment where um, you, the numbers are a bit muddy but the underlying business has dramatically improved and the share price doesn't reflect that. That's where I think patient investors can just buy, hold and just wait for the numbers. They'll, they'll come, they'll come eventually. And when they do, the share prices will, will respond. Mm. Yeah, Storm McGraw recently bought some shares, um, further strengthening the alignment to shareholders. Um, mm. But again, just a note here for, for listeners, 
Um, just be mindful of liquidity. Uh, Kip, Kip, Kip McGrath, the company, KME is a ticker code, can be a little bit uh, illiquid. So just keep that in mind. It does pay a little handy dividend as well. Um, the next company, which I might jump on quickly, um, it's a company called National Tire. It trades under the ticker code NTD, um, sometimes called National Tire Real or NTAW. It's an interesting business. It's probably not what you think. When people think of tires, they think of you know Goodyear, Bow Repairs, and getting their car serviced. This business is primarily a distributor of tires. So it imports and then on sells that to retailers. It does have its own retail arm called Tire Right. Um, and it recently made an acquisition of another business called Carters. Um, so these are like bus- uh, business to consumer B to, to C, um, but typically it's B to B. Um, and the business has grown largely through acquisition over the years. What's really impressive about National Tire is it's maintained its cash flow in that time. Uh, it's used some debt, it's used some equity, um, but it's it's grown its business acquisitively. And when it makes these acquisitions, it actually brings on um, the, the founder or the CEO typically, uh, which is a good, good move for bi- the business. And it reminds us that um, you know these people want to stay around. These people run these businesses. One of the hardest things when you make an acquisition an acquisition is the culture and the integration, and they've done a pretty good job of that under Peter Ludeman. Um, the business has uh, re- consistently reported incremental revenue as a result of these acquisitions, uh, but it's also over the past two years had some favourable, um, I guess, extraneous variables. So things like currency movements in the right direction, good import-export environment, um, but what we're seeing now is probably a reversal of some of those things. So we've seen it make these acquisitions into a pretty good market and it's established itself as Australia's largest independent tyre retailer, uh, tyre distributor, sorry, um, and also bringing that retail arm. I initially thought when they acquired the tyre right business, I think it was part of tyres for you, I thought that they would actually um, spin that off. But what they decided to do is actually make that a franchise model because it's not their core competency while they focus on integration and, and building out this IT backbone. Basically, the business um, went through this period where it was really dependent on Cooper's tyres. Uh, that includes the Mickey Thompson brand. So people were really concerned when that contract, I think it was Goodyear bought uh, Cooper's, and they were really worried about that relationship, how that might sour but basically what National Tire and Wheel has done is basically said, okay, well, we're just going to grow out of this. We're going to grow so big that, um, you know, all of the, the tire suppliers and manufacturers have to work with us and we have to be able to push that through our network. Um, so by building itself out vertically, um, then also having some distribution footprint to, to consume the consumer side and also dominating things like mining, forklifts, agriculture, it's basically like entrenched itself in the, in the ecosystem in Australia. Um, there were a few things that stood out from the recent results. Um, it is experiencing higher import prices because of the weaker Aussie dollar and the um, rubber costs, I believe, are up too. So there's a material cost there. Um, shipping costs, we all know, have gone up through supply chain bottlenecks and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I would expect to see higher inflation in the second half hitting some of those wages. Um, that, that line item for wages that they have, while they are ripping out some cost due to synergies, that we'll probably see that go higher. They increased in response to, uh, and this has been pretty common across the industry, actually, um, in response to supply chain issues and in inventory, they've um, dramatically invested in their working capital. So their cash flow isn't looking quite as crisp as it normally is. Um, the shares fell about, I think, off the top of my head, about 20% on reporting day. So one of those big volatile ones that you were talking about on the downside. Um, some of the things that they can do, however, now that they've um, made a number of these acquisitions of ties for you, Black Rubber and Carters, is they can use their own network to push their own volume through, which they haven't been able to necessarily do in the past. 
So say if they have the retail arm, they can fill shelf space with their own inventory and they can start to push that through there rather than um, be beholden to retailers and just getting what the manufacturer sends. So um, there are some many organic levers that they can pull now. I think some of the concerns might be around, well, hey, in the past you said you're going to make all these acquisitions and now all of a sudden you've shifted to, we're not making acquisitions, we've got down on the balance sheet, we're going to you know, go in a different direction and focus on the organic side. I think it's the right time to do that. I think they should be doing that right now. Um, I think the move to kind of diversify the, the tyre right business and focus more on their, their distribution is really interesting. They made an acquisition of a company called Black Rubber, which I'm not sure how much you know about tyres, mate, but um, I didn't know a lot before I got involved with uh, National Tyre. But one of the things that they can do is they can actually do deals like kilometres um, so they can price tires and, and form um, enterprise kind of wide or company wide deals with fleet companies and, and whatever to basically charge a fee on like a per kilometer basis, um, which is really interesting for tires. Uh, electric vehicles, by the way, also use rubber tires. So just in case people are wondering, you know, what's an electric vehicle is going to do this. Um, but what they can do is through their retreading business, they can now push all of their network through the retreading businesses that they bought, which lowers costs and um, allows them to share that, that IP across the teams. The company pays a dividend, um, but obviously that's dependent on cash flow being stable over the next 24 months. I think it should be stable, but um, fully franked, good dividend. Um, I used to, when I did evaluation on this, um, I actually used a 15% discount rate, which is probably fair. Maybe you could go a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower, depending on your view of the risks from the macro, um, and a 1% terminal growth rate. And I think it's still reasonably priced at these levels, even if you get, you know, a decent dividend and modest compounding. Um, I think uh, Peter Ludeman, who has, if I'm not mistaken, AMP capital background, really good capital allocator, um, seems to be strongly aligned to the business and, and lots of those founders still entwined with the business too. So National Tire, it's not without risk. It's a bit of a hairy one. It's a, one of those kind of acquisitive roll-up slash really deep value plays. You have to do your numbers carefully. But um, I think it's an interesting one, at least for the watch list, um, and as we see this this next six months play out, just keep an eye on those wages and um, basically how those costs expand. Uh, we want to see those under control. But NTD is the ticker code. Interesting business, offers yield um, and modest growth. Um, I think that that's number four, Luke. So now we've got one more. And this company that you're about to bring up is a company I think I looked at, and I, the irony is I think I looked at it when you and I may have been on Ausbiz together. Uh, for the call at lunchtime one day, and I didn't know anything about it, and I did a little bit of cramming for the show, and now I still know that little bit about it. So I'm hoping you can fill us in on what EarlyPay does. EPY yeah. is the ticket code. Just, just quickly on on National Tire, um, mm. I, I I like the business, and I think it's in the right space. Distributors can be brilliant businesses, um, particularly in that nice little niche, and and I think I, I agree with a lot of your comments there around the key to a good distributor is a, is a very competent management team. And I think these guys have been listed long enough and, and being through COVID to, to demonstrate that. And um, more importantly, I agree with your point on the balance sheet. I, I had a quick look. I think it's sort of at a level now that's comfortable. Um, it's about one times net debt to EBITDA. You could probably, you know, if they found some aggressive lenders, you could probably take that to two. But I, I think you're right. I think this is the right time to now squeeze mm. what you've what you've acquired and, and get those organic synergies um and it's one that yeah i i yeah pretty much agree with everything you said it's it's got some risks to it but for the right investor um you know i, I think you've got a good management team at the helm to sort of steer that ship through them and, and do okay mm. yeah it's all about positioning mm. so, uh, position, position sizing yeah, rather, exactly. with something this 
size. Um, so yeah, it's not without risk, as I said, but it's a really interesting play for yield and um, maybe some modest growth as well. Just keep mm. an eye on those um, extraneous factors, I guess. But Early Pay, mate, tell us early about pay. this. Yeah, so look, Early Pay, it's by far the worst named company in my portfolio. Um, <laughs> this is the old CML group um, that does oh, invoice yeah. financing for, um, yes, for, for yes, small businesses. Yes. So Early pay, of course, you've had before pay come to the markets. And, and I think, you know, your first inclination when you see early pay is, oh, it's another buy now, pay later. But yep. it's, it's it's not. So these guys, if if you're a small business um, and, and, you know, you've sold some goods to usually a larger business and, and they may pay you on 60, 90, sometimes even 100-day terms before you actually get your cash, these are guys you can go to to sell them your invoice um, and, you know, for a certain amount. They, they use some AI in the background to calculate exactly how much. Um, they'll, they'll buy your invoice off you so you get cash up front in the door. So it's a very simple business. Factoring has been around for many, many years, um, mm. millennia maybe, <laughs> um, and they, they do it well. So this is a business, like I said, used to be CML Group, been listed for a long time. Um, it was doing very well until COVID. So if you look at sort of their net profit up until COVID, it had just grown steadily year on year from sort of one mil up to nearly 10. COVID hits, of course. COVID, in hindsight, I think COVID's been such an interesting time because at a at a total societal view, I think we've sort of gotten through COVID not too bad compared to what you maybe would have thought when, when it sort of first hit. But at a micro level, and particularly small business in Australia, you know there was some there was some big hits. And looking back, that's probably the biggest paradigm shift we've had through COVID. I think a lot of a lot of power or split between small business and big business shifted to big business who were larger, better access to capital, better access to survivability through COVID. And, and you've probably seen that impact of small business, which fingers crossed can can come back strongly. But nonetheless, these guys exposed to small business, so that profit really stagnated through FY20, FY21. And then I think we're finally seeing that, you know, big pent-up snapback from, from, from COVID. So this first half result, um, out of the, the three I've brought and even probably my whole portfolio, it was by far the, the best result I'd seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so these guys did um, just over 7.5 mil um, net profit, which is basically, you know, they did 8.5 mil the whole of last year. So a very, very strong first half result. Um, they upgraded their guidance and it was the third time they've done that. So when they first came to market at the end of their FY21, they said, we think we'll grow about 40% um, profit in, in FY22. Um, at their AGM, they then changed that to, we think we'll do 50% profit. Um, and then now they've come out and said, we'll do um, you know 15 mil, which is roughly about 70% profit. So you're seeing the, the momentum of this business um, increasing very strongly. Um, and again, it comes back to, you'll probably see this consistent theme across the three companies I've mentioned and you see it across most of my portfolio, but, um, you know, conservative, competent management teams. So, you know, despite doing over seven and a half mil in the first half and second half is general, generally seasonally stronger for them, they've only guided about 15. So it's not hard to see, they'll probably end up beating that guidance again quite well. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sort of modeling out maybe somewhere between 15 and a half to 16 million at the end of the day. Um, only currently trades on about 130 mil market cap. So this is this is one for the, the the deep value out there. This is like sort of you know probably eight to nine times earnings um, with with very strong growth. Again, dividends, cash flow. Um, yeah, you, you'll see that consistent theme across pretty much everything I talk about, I suppose. Mm. Um, so that core business is where all the growth is coming from. That um, that that invoice financing business. Um, it, it grew 24 percent. 
it had some good control over their expenses, which only grew 21. As they get bigger, and you see this with a lot of finance companies, like um, if you were to look at maybe a Money Me, a Wiser, you know, some of those guys, as you get bigger, you can negotiate better terms with your with your lenders. So their cost of interest is coming down. It just it widens that operational leverage even more. Um, the the reported numbers they had the benefit of a of a lower tax rate, which will normalise. But um, even taking like stripping out the tax effect, you know, still grew sort of 35 percent, which is um, which is really strong. How about um, um, how about sorry, Luke Syndrome? How about the things like um, losses and their like kind of their risk management? Yeah, it's a very good point. So again, like it's it's always important for a business like this. Um, so this is a business where you've generally got a um, a very strong asset backing the the lending. So you've got you know um, an invoice that's already been created. Um, like I said, usually for a larger customer, and so <laughs> their their loss rates, you know, they they say they're sort of less than ten basis points. Um, so it's not a business that has to manage. So when I compared it to um, a Money Me or a Wiser before, those guys are direct consumer finance. Yeah, that's consumer that's a space where I'm a little bit wary on that space because I think you've been through two years where consumers have been quite subsidised by the government and consumer balance sheets are quite healthy. Yeah, so I sort of take their loss rates with a little bit of a grain of salt. But for these guys, the quality of those those assets that are backing the um, the the loans, I think. Um, yeah, their, their loss rates have, have, have never been a big issue for them. Um, because keep in mind, they're not financing the small businesses directly. They're just financing the, the um, receivables that they have. So um, even, even if those small businesses are struggling, that's still a legal claim they have to the receivables on another customer that they've issued that to. So, um, mm. yeah, they do have one thing I will call out. And again, I'll talk about um, XRF before and sort of how you ascribe value as an investor. They do have a direct equipment finance book. Um, so that's one where if I may, you know, actually my wife used to run a cafe. We have a cafe, we have our coffee machine, costs a few thousand dollars. You can get that financed and, and you know, just um, have, have uh, lease payments instead. So that's, a, yeah, that's one of their segments. That's one that I'm not as fussed about, to be honest. Um, it's, it's an area that the history of the ASX is pretty checkered. You might remember Silver Chef uh, a yeah, few years yeah, ago. Of course. Um, yeah. Access Today popped up for about a year in that same space before you know, they, they blew up pretty spectacularly um, because you're exposing yourself much more to the underlying health of the small business that you're servicing. Um, you know, they, they need to yeah. be able to service these, um, these, these equipment financing. But it's a very, very small part of their business and by far the, engine, the earnings engine is driven by that core receivables business, which I think is doing really, really well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, look, like I said, I, I thought it was one of the, the, the better results I saw. It was just an explosion of organic growth. A lot of that, I think, is just pent-up COVID demand. But, you know, management have sort of said they've seen the start second half 22 continue. Um, as they get bigger, they're able to, you know, the, the constraints of their growth sort of get removed because they, um, they have warehouse facilities with their lenders that can, you know, um, only lend up to a certain amount. They expand so they can now grow faster. And they actually only announced that the other day, I think yesterday, that they'd increase their warehouse facility. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, it's a very well-run business. You need that. Anytime you play in, in the finance space, you, I think you've got to have a really strong view on the management team and their, their conservative nature um, because lending, lending is such a tough business. Um, bear in mind, again, we'll get into the weeds a little bit here. I'll try and keep it a little bit high level, but when you lend um, a small business or a consumer money, 
the, the profit you recognise up front is effectively what you want it to be. So the accounting standards essentially let you take a predicted um, loss on that and then across your whole book, you know, whatever's left is your reported profit. So always, always keep that in mind that, um, you know, you've got to have a strong view on how management approach their book, how they're lending, um, fast growth, even though, you know, I've been talking about early pay growing fast, um, it's incredibly easy to grow fast as a, as a, as a lender of money. Um, all you have to do is give people a lower interest rate and you'll generally grow faster than your peers, but it means mm-hmm. you're taking on potentially more risk. But again, I've known this management team for a long time, spoken with them and, and, and you know, followed them for a long time. I've got a lot of comfort around their competency and how they grow their loan book and their business. And you see that in the historical results as well. So I thought it was a fantastic result. I think they'll come out and actually beat that guidance that they've put out to the market and, and probably trade on maybe eight to nine times earnings with, with some good growth. Um, the big risk, I suppose, um, and it goes into what you were just talking about with National Tire, is um, you know the underlying exposure to small businesses in Australia. If this is a double-dip recession, um, you know we've already seen what COVID did to their volume numbers and their profits. Um, you know That similar thing could happen again. So bear that in mind. Um, again, it goes back to what I said. I don't invest because of macro, but for a position like early pay, you have to be aware. You have to sort of have your finger on the pulse of where you think the economy is at any one time, roughly. Um, and, mm. and, you know, maybe even more, more specifically, the trajectory, you know, uh, are things doing well? Are things maybe starting to turn? What are the headwinds? Um, and for these guys in particular, for small business. But, um, yeah, putting it into the side, I think the valuation you're getting, I think, compensates you for, for you know, all that risk and, and then some. It's a really interesting business. When we looked at it, when I quickly looked at it for, for Ausbiz, um, I was surprised by how clean the financials were, which you mentioned there. It's, you don't often see that so early. When a company's growing like that, you don't see that um, very often. So that was refreshing, actually. And the name, mm. I guess the name is a bit, <laughs> is a bit uh, scary in these times, but um, I think it's a really interesting business. So that's early pay, EPY and, uh, is the ticket code on the ASX. Uh, mate, you've brought some really interesting companies. I know you, you invest in a very deliberate way in these profitable, not speculative companies, you know, avoid biotech, avoid resources, um, which, which I think that's the way I invest too. So, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Uh, just, to, just to recap, we covered uh, Kit McGrath, KME's ticket code, uh, Catapult, CAT, Early Pay, EPY, XRF Scientific. That was a great overview of that, by the way. XRF is the ticket code. And National Tire, NTD's ticket code. Mate, we've got merryweathercapital.com.au. How else can people get in touch with you, let's say, if they want to ask a question about some of the companies that have come up today or even invest? Yeah, reach out on the email, investors at merryweathercapital.com.au. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Luke Winchester 9 um, I'm pretty prolific on there. So yeah, if you sure. shoot, me, shoot me a Twitter message, I'll, I'm sure I'll see it. Um, yeah, they'd reach out in that, that channel and, and more than happy to provide any more information on the fund um, or just, yeah, chat about stocks if someone has a question about any of those three companies or, or something else they may have seen. Um, you know, okay. you're familiar with me through Wasbiz through as well. Um, I, just, I just love talking about companies and, and what I'm seeing out there in the market. So more than happy to always uh, pick up the phone or, or shoot an email to someone. Great. Yeah, I'll put all those links in the show notes, mate, as well as a link to the original conversation that you and I had. So Luke Winchester from Weather Capital, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate it. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods. 
strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.